Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'll be joined by Sandy Carter, and we're going to talk about creating immersive experiences inside of Web3. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Instagram, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter, and at Web3 Examiner on Warpcast. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do, not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Sandy Carter. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Sandy Carter. If you don't know who Sandy is, you got to know Sandy. She is a futurist and the chief operating officer at Unstoppable Domains. Her new book is called The Tiger and the Rabbit, a business fable harnessing the power of the metaverse, Web3 and AI for business success. Sandy, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Boy, that's a long book title, isn't it? I know it is. And your publishers wanted to optimize all those key phrases, clearly. That's right. That's right. That's right. Today, Sandy and I are going to explore how to create immersive experiences with Web3. Sandy, let's start with the big question, perhaps on some people's minds, which is why create immersive experiences for businesses in the first place? Like, what's the reason why this is, this is important? Yeah. So, you know, the whole audience and the whole backdrop has been changing very, very rapidly. And now people are expecting to be immersed in what you're doing, creating a phenomenal experience. In fact, Gartner said that the last form of pure competitive advantage is that experience. Like that's really the last pure 
form of competitive advantage. And so when you think about an immersive experience, you're thinking about one that you feel comfortable in, one that you have an experience that you that's memorable, that's not forgettable, and one that creates something that is unique and different, especially in today's marketplace with so much noise happening everywhere. So immersive experiences are super important as we move forward. And in fact, in the futurist trends, it's on the top five list of things that companies need to focus on today. I think what I hear you say is you want to differentiate yourself as a business. You need to create some sort of an experience that is going to make an impact on people, right? Because in this world that we operate in and I operate in the Web 2 world and a little bit of the Web 3 world, you operate very much in the Web 3 world and you come from the Web 2 world. The concept of immersive experiences wasn't really something we thought about outside of like Disney, right? Because I'm going to Disneyland literally this weekend with two of my older girls. That's going to be an immersive experience. I know what that is, right? And I know the value of that for the brand of Disney. But, you know, I think about like businesses of all different sizes and I kind of like say to myself, all right, what could the benefit be to the consumer, the customer in an immersive experience? I'm just curious if you can maybe tackle that for me. First of all, if you think about it, immersive experience means that you're engaged. And really, one of the big things you're looking for is to have that, you know, engaged response and engaged viewpoint. So if you think about why businesses would want to do that, they want to get their customers invested in them. In Web3, we have a saying that the community is the project and the project is the community. And why do we say that? Well, in the past, we've been customer obsessed. So we're listening to our customers and having them give us input. But in the future, customers are working side by side with us to create what we're doing, to form that community, to really ensure that they are with us, not them versus us. So I think that that is really important today as we're focused on immersive business. And I know we're gonna go through some examples as well, because I think the examples really bring home what we mean by this new immersive experience. And you can do it digitally or in real life or sometimes both. So let's talk about from a Web3 perspective, what is an immersive experience specifically in light of Web3? I know we're gonna get into how to create it, but like, what is it in light of Web3? How would you define what it is just so people can wrap their head around it? I see it being, it could be a metaverse where you are in the metaverse, in the virtual world, where you have a social presence and you're doing something with a brand as an immersive experience. It could also be something where you are immersed in the data that you own. So for example, digital identity, which we talked about before, where you're immersing yourself in the data and that data then becomes something that you look at how you get your your rewards for yourself, you're engaged in that, you're immersed in that as well. Um, Those are two very specific Web3 examples. The last one is Web3 because in the Web2 world, it's hard for you to immerse yourself in the data that you don't own or that you don't have. In the Web3 world, you own that data, you have that data. So a great example is we just had an announcement with a company called MetaRides. And MetaRides is a car, but it's a digital collectible that you race in a game. I mean, talk about an immersive experience. It's tied to your identity. You own the NFT, unlike some Web2 games where you don't own that digital collectible. And then you're able to do things with it. You have utility with it. And you're immersed in the playing of the game, of engaging socially, of really being there in the moment with that brand. 
Very cool. I'm glad you brought up gaming because I think a lot of us can wrap our head around what an experience is in light of a game and especially where gaming is going, right? With Apple announcing their new augmented reality thing, you know, and Facebook slash meta coming out with the new quest and all this stuff. Like we're moving into this world where we're going to create experiences that are either layered on, on top of the existing world, right? Or that are going to be virtual worlds, which is really fascinating. So if someone listening to this is thinking about creating an immersive experience, let's kind of start with like, what's the first thing we kind of need to focus on? Well, I see immersive experiences being bucketed into a set of, I guess, options today or choices of strategy, if you were. And so what we're seeing in the marketplace today to create an immersive and an engagement strategy is you're either going to start looking at co-creating with people, with a company, with your users, with your community. Uh, you're going to start building out a loyalty program, but a loyalty program that doesn't separate you from your fans or your super fans. We'll talk about building, uh, you know, communities and the power that communities bring to the table. So some of those are a part of our immersive and engaging strategies. What I would do is I would start first always with what the business goal is. Like, what is it that do you need with your business? And work backwards from the business problem, because that will lead you to the solution versus starting with a solution, looking for a problem to solve. So what is your big, you know, your big gotcha that you're working on today as a brand? Is it trying to reach a new audience? Is it generating more loyalty or deeper loyalty with your current customer set? Is it, you know, looking at a new category, for example, something that's never been done before and you need to educate in that space? So starting with your problem or what you're trying to address with your users, your fans, your customers, whatever you choose to call them, I think is always the best first step to decide where you go next. So let's zoom in on co-creation. For those that don't know what it is, why don't you define it and kind of explain why it's so important and then we can get into an example. Yeah. So co-creation is actually having your strategy, your roadmap, your product jointly designed, developed, deployed by a customer or a user. And typically what that means is that you're enabling that customer to participate in your process. So, you know, some companies are looking at participating in a requirements process or a design process or even a, a creation of the offering process as well, for example, with art. And so it, it really means figuring out what your customers value where they can add value in that process, what's the right step to add them in, and then executing on a way to engage them, something that's fun, that brings value to them and to you, not just to you, but to them and to you as well. And what's the why behind co-creation? Because there's a lot of people listening right now that might have this mindset. We have amazing people in our company that know better than our customer what we should do next. Why ought they maybe revisit that mindset? You know, it's really about ensuring that you are not missing trends or not missing elements that your customer might be able to bring to the table. It doesn't mean that you're replacing your amazing team with your customer. You're just bringing them in sooner. I'd love to share this story. We were uh, creating a product at Amazon, Amazon Web Services. We were really co-creating the requirements. So in the requirements phase, Obviously, they weren't coding with us or doing anything else, but we were co-creating the requirements with this group of customers. We got really deep because it was an area that we felt that we, we weren't the experts in. The customers had all this expertise. 
And so we brought them in. I still remember today, Michael, I was on stage and I had gotten approval to have the team that developed this brand new product we were launching stand up and take a bow. And uh, the team was about 20 people. So I was on stage and I said, okay, would everyone who was involved in this product creation stand up and take a bow? A thousand people stood up in the audience. There were probably 8,000 people there. A thousand people stood up. And my boss looked at me, he's like, hey, you, I, thought I only gave you approval for 20 people. What are these thousand people doing? All those people stood up because it wasn't just my team. It was all those customers and partners who would input into that. It was one of our biggest successes. Why? Because it wasn't us creating something for them. It was us co-creating it together. So it brings that high level engagement. It brings greater specificity and it can bring greater successful results. And when you do it correctly. Let's talk about the Forever 21 example. That's a great story, by the way. What was that product? Just out of curiosity, did, would people know what it is today? It's called License Manager. It was it was not a super sexy product, right? Like I didn't get to create that year the AI product, but a License Manager product yeah. uh, that was able to count licenses for people, something people needed. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, not super sexy, but very successful. So pretty cool. Yeah, so talk about Forever 21. I love this example. And I partnered with this example with my good colleague, Justin Hofford. So Forever 21, if you know Forever 21, they've got these really hip and cool stores and you can go in and, you know, get these amazing, cool fashions at great prices. Well, one of the problems that they were trying to solve is the newer audience was not buying as frequently in Forever 21 and didn't have a great brand image of Forever 21. And so what they decided to do is to create a metaverse, which is just a digital world inside of Roblox. Now, Ro Roblox is a, I would call it more of like a web 2.5, close to a web three company because it's not on blockchain, but it enables this amazing world that you can create, not just you, but probably your sons and daughters are doing it today. And inside of that world, what they did is they enabled these newer customers, that's the age group that happens to exist today on Roblox, to come together and create product. And so they were co-designing beanie hats and t-shirts. And it was just really amazing. First of all, all these younger, this younger crowd, this younger segment they wanted to touch really were engaged. They were designing with real fashion designers. I mean, who doesn't want to be a fashion designer someday? So they were in there really learning and inputting and engaging. So it increased their engagement. It also increased their brand image. Like here's Forever 21 out on Roblox, which I mean, check it out. It's so incredibly popular and has higher engagement today than any social media platform. People stay in there for hours. And then it also boosted their sales. They came out with a beanie that said, I think it was said forever on the, it was like a black beanie with a forever. They came out with a t-shirt. And why is that? Well, just like the example I gave, we saw people coming out with these incredible product that they believe that they were de the designer on or part of the design team. And of course you want to buy that. And so Forever 21 really had some amazing results that came out of this immersive experience that they created for their users. Love it, love it, love it. Um, really what I'm taking home from you is, and by the way, this is just as applicable to web two companies as is to web three companies, right? If you've got consumers, customers of your products, and you have a chance to allow them to be part of the co-creation process, and this is even for creators as well, right? You don't have to actually have physical products. 
like you said, you could be an artist or you could be a YouTuber or you could be whatever, right? If you get a chance to have them be part of the creative process, there's that buy-in and affiliation with the brand that's very strong and my guess lasts a very, very long time, right? Yeah, and there's something in it for the fan too, right? Like it's not just that the sales increased at Forever 21. These young, you know, next generation, they got to experience working with designers. They got to see what the process was like. So they also carried something away from the entire experience as well. And imagine now Forever 21 didn't do this, but I've been talking to companies where they might form design teams and then give a portion of the profits to everybody. That's kind of interesting too. Obviously that did not happen at Forever 21, but I see people toying with this. Like how do I reward my my customers, my fans for investing so much in the brand. Very cool. Okay. So we've talked about the first thing that we need to focus on specifically, which is the co-creation thing. Let's talk about what's next. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about rewards and loyalty, if that is okay. I think this would be a really good one. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, rewards and loyalties are really important and they have been for quite a while, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, almost everybody has some sort of reward program. But do you know who you're rewarding? And is your reward program effective and efficient? You know, I've talked to some people who have a reward program that have like a, a physical passport and they stamp it. Well, then customers lose it and they're upset because they lost their passport or somebody, some people come in with their passport and then they leave and they they pass the passport to someone else. And so it gets used multiple times. So how do you really have a great loyalty program that kind of meets all your needs? That's fun, but that also can be credentialed, I guess you would say. So one of the interesting examples, you know, and there are many out there today that are doing this with Web3 because the loyalty is credentialed, it sits on blockchain, it's secure, and so you can see it. Real quick, before you give the example, just for people that do not have a rewards program, kind of explain maybe why this is so valuable because I think we might intuitively, instinctively understand it, but if we don't have one, maybe we don't really truly understand it. Yeah, that's a great point. So a rewards program is where you're rewarding your most faithful customers for doing certain acts. It could be, you know, uh, something digital, like you followed me on Twitter, you retweeted my account, you joined my channel, or you attended my event. It could be something like you donated to a certain cause. There's all kinds of ways to, to have people earn badges or something that designates that they have a particular level. I'm sure everybody out there has been to Starbucks. So Yeah, but I'm curious why that's so valuable to the consumer from a psychological perspective. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. Like, I think we all understand what it is, but how does it actually benefit a business? That's the part I'm curious about. You know what I mean? So it's really fascinating. I think all of us have this psychology in us where they where we want to compete against others and we want to you know constantly do more and earn more right you think about even school right you're a c you're a b you're an a and that it gives that kind of effect to consumers as well as you do more spend more are more you get more benefits as you move up i mean a gr- Well, I don't know. I'm going to use the example anyway. I think it's the most stark on an airplane, right? If you think about an airline, you know, if you're a certain level, you've earned a certain number of points, you're part of that reward system. You know, you get a better seat, you get, you know, serve certain drinks, certain food, you get to board first, you get to store your luggage first. 
there's all kinds of amazing benefits for being a loyal member of that particular brand. And uh, that's what we see. It's kind of psychology, but also it is the value that you get from earning the points or the rewards or whatever that company decides is most important to them and to their customers. I kind of also think there's a lock-in effect here too, right? Like you think about- That's a good point, yeah. You think about like my American Express points and my Capital One, you know, rewards or whatever, or my Marriott points, right? Like I kind of feel like- if there is a, like, I know certain people only fly certain airlines because of the points. You know what I mean? Because I want to be treated better. <laughs> so you're willing to pay more, even though it's fundamentally the same kind of experience on the same kind of plane. Right. So there is something to that from a business perspective that I think makes a lot of sense. And even in the grocery store, maybe you'll get coupons, right. As a result of being part of their whatever program, and that'll save you money. So I just think it's a fascinating concept that we for sure think about in the big, big brands, but could also apply even in the small brands, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about a loyalty program, I think, is that everybody can do it. You know, if you can't do it digitally, you can do, a, you know, a paper passport. I just saw this at a very small business where they had a passport and they gave you these stamps. I think anybody can do a loyalty program. I think Web3 is a big improvement here because the loyalty program, you know, it's soul bound, you can't transfer it, you can prove it, it's secure. I mean, I just think there's so many benefits, which is why we see folks like Nike and Starbucks moving their loyalty programs over to Web3. Let's talk about IHOP. I know you were going to go there because we had talked about that. So let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really fascinating. Uh, A dear friend of mine, Kathy Hackle, who I think you know too, and myself both had an experience. We both have kids. And so IHOP is back in style. If you're not from the U.S., IHOP is a place that you go to have pancakes. primarily breakfast and pancakes, right? Yeah, the International House of Pancakes. That's what it stands for. Yeah, 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 that's true. <laughs> and so it was really fascinating to me when I took my girls in with their, with their friends and I saw this IHOP Web3 loyalty program. I think I had remembered reading about it, but I hadn't gone into an IHOP in a while. And so it was really fascinating to look at what membership in their loyalty program was. It's called the Bank of Pancakes, which I I thought that was kind of cool. There are some of the perks that are there as well, like a secret menu or a free birthday pancake if you're part of that membership as well. I thought it was interesting because, you know, everybody's talking about Starbucks and Nike and using them over and over again. But here was this other interesting example where you are using a digital collectible or an NFT to designate that someone had come in and done something, eaten eaten a number of pancakes or been to the IHOP a number of times. And then they get rewarded for that as well to be a regular consumer. And it was really fascinating to me to see how the next generation was looking at that. Just like in the example of Forever 21, the next generation really values digital collectibles. They also value stuff in real life, but digital collectibles are valuable to them. I don't have to explain to them, you know, here's a Robux, this is really important, or here's a virtual, you know, sword that you can use in the game. They get it. And so I thought it was really interesting that they didn't use the words, NFT or, you know, any of the the sexy web three words, they just used loyalty program or digital collectible. And that next generation got it like that. And so I just found that that was quite fascinating that 
you know, IHOP is using and leveraging this as a loyalty program as well. Again, not mentioning the Web3 world, which for me, Michael, is about, you know, if you think about a technology that becomes more mature, eventually you don't talk about the technology. Like today, nobody says, I have a Web2 solution. They just talk about, you know, a digital solution. And I love seeing that fact here with IHOP where they're not using the Web3 words, but yet they have a loyalty program that's based on those concepts. How did you discover it? Was it on like a placard on your your table where you were eating? Yeah, they had a big sign up. It was called Eat Pancakes, Earn Rewards. Huh. You know, how do you earn these rewards? Yeah, this bank of pancakes. It was up on the walls. I can actually send it to you too if you're interested. And it was quite fascinating to see it. And you can get what they called a pan coin, which is like a pancake, like a badge. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was really interesting. And then it talked about what you could get. You could scan it with a a QR code to get access to it. Very cool. Really fascinating. Very cool. Okay. So we've talked about co-creation first, and then we talked about rewards and loyalty second, and we're talking about how to create immersive experiences and things we ought to consider. What's the next third thing that we need to be thinking about? The third thing I think is really important, and that's about building a community. Communities, I learned, you know, when I came over Web2 uses communities kind of fly by night, right? Oh, we've got a community here. we got a community here. Web3 takes communities very seriously. So I'm talking about the serious communities. Like you're really a part of that community. You're engaging, you're supporting, you're part of the fam, basically. So that's the type of community that I'm talking about that creates that immersive experience that means that you have FOMO if you're not doing something with the community or you miss something that happens in the community or you're not contributing as part of the community, which is also really important. And I think that this one is, you know, for me, very exciting to see the differences in how Web3 companies are going about it. And I do feel like this is a big secret sauce for Web3 companies. I agree. And maybe we should talk about what we mean by community. Are you talking mostly discords or is there something else that you had in mind when you think of community in Web3? So there are lots of different types of communities. You know, there are tools like Discord, which is really hard. I'm not a Discord fan. There's Telegram. But we also see communities forming around digital collectibles. So I think, you know, if you talk to Frank Degas, I think he would say the success of his NFT collections is actually not the picture. It's the community that the picture represents. And so that's really what I'm talking about here and really wanting to emphasize as well. Yeah. And I am part of that community. And I know that that community. Oh, you are. Yeah, I know that. The, I mean, I'm not an active member, but I happen to own a D-God. I do know that that community is super active on Twitter. So, and of course they have a Discord as well. And of course they show up at events like NFT NYC. And they have a Telegram. Yeah, they have multiple. Th- yeah. And events are really important. Like they did a pizza party at NFT NYC. I don't know if you were there, but they invited me to their pizza pizza party get together. And it was, you know, it's just pizza. <laughs> I was at their basement party, which was kind of their crazy, you know, took over a hotel basement, like, you know, like a hardcore party kind of thing. <laughs> I felt a little out of my element, you know, but it was still, it was still a lot of fun to experience it because the community is actually, you would think made up of 20 somethings, but people of all different ages were there, men and women, you know, even though Frank is very much like a guy's guy, you know, crazy guy kind of, kind of person. He, he almost reminds me a little bit of a young Gary V to be honest with you, but he does. it's That's true. Great. 
analogy. Yeah, I love that. It's true that they've created a really loyal community. And why do you think, I I think I know the answer, but I want to know your thoughts. Why do you think community is so essential in the world of Web3? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons about it. I think part of it is the ethos of Web3, which is more about there isn't a centralized view or controller. It's everybody's more equal and contributing. Everybody has to contribute to make something better. And so, you know, if you think about the ethos of Web3, it's all about decentralization. And why decentralization? Because there has been broken trust with centralized groups. And so for me, the community is really about the new element that's so important, which is trust. And I think a community that has trust is a community that's going to grow and flourish and do really well. And for me, I think that's the biggest part of it. What was your theory? Well, I mean, I I find this really interesting coming from the world of social media. I feel like this is like in the world of social media and, you know, my other show, Social Media Marketing and Social Media Examiner, it's all about community, but it's becoming harder to do community in on platforms where it's harder for the audience to see the content, right? And this isn't necessarily solved by Discord or solved by NFTs, but there is something different about being a follower of a brand on YouTube or Facebook or TikTok versus being a owner of of an NFT and being part of a group that is restricted to just a thousand or 10,000 holders. You know what I mean? There, there's something different. Like for example, when I tell people that I belong to proof and there's only a thousand of us, you know, it kind of creates a bond, you know what I mean? That is verifiable if you will on chain. Right. And I feel like it's exciting and it allows a bunch of strangers to come together around a common cause that they've made an investment in. And I, I do agree with you. The community is like absolutely essential. That's my thoughts, at least. I think the trust element is also really important because, you know, if you look at some of these communities that are coming together around ownership and something happens, you can you can see, I mean, you see it, you know, lived out loud on Twitter, you know, where somebody breaks someone's trust or somebody does something and the community falls apart because that trust falls apart. So I think it's ownership plus that tr- that trust has to be there too that exist and there has to be value for the members too. I'm just going to go a little further on this. The The challenge with these decentralized communities is is no leadership sometimes, right? Yes. And that's where, for example, you've got the need for a leader like Frank, you know, the co-founder of D-Gods and Kevin, who's also one of the co-founders or Luca now with Pudgy Penguins, right? And I feel like that's the you need a community, but you also need someone to step up and lead the community or multiple someone to step and lead and lead the community. Just because someone buys an NFT doesn't mean a community will magically form. And there is a little bit of responsibility for the individuals behind the project to step up and lead. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Well, and you gave a lot of great examples. All of those were great guys. I will call out Gigi too, who oh, I yeah, also Gigi know. Scarlett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crypto tech women. Crypto tech women. I think she's done a magnificent job of building community as well because she listens to her community. She's part of them, right? She is a technologist. She is a developer and she's very welcoming and warm and she is a leader. She's not the only person in the community, obviously, but she is a leader of her own community. I think she's done a really great job of building that out as well. We were going to give an example about Polygon specifically here. 
I'll just say that for those that don't know what Polygon is, it's a, well, I think of it as a currency, but it's, it's a crypto, Matic is the currency, Polygon is the company or whatever behind all of it. And it's a side chain to Ethereum. We'll just put that out there for folks that don't know what that is. And currently, unfortunately, the Securities and Exchange Commission is trying to say that it is a security, yeah. which, and they're trying to take it off of the Coinbase and all that kind of stuff, which is a topic for another day. But you saw them doing something specifically that you thought was really intriguing. And we should also mention there's a lot of big brands like Nike, for example, that's using Polygon with their dot swoosh and, and all the stuff that they're doing. So there's a lot of big brands that have chose this particular blockchain because it's very efficient economically. But like, what are they doing from a community perspective that you thought was so intriguing? I'm curious. Yeah, so I have a couple of things that I think they've done really well. So one, I think that they are a very flexible organization. You know, they're one of the largest Web3 organizations, but they still operate like a startup. So if you come in and ask them to help you, they don't say, you know, oh, here, step one, step two, fill out a form, we'll get back to you. They're immediately engaging with you and listening to you. So they're listening to the community members. They're reacting immediately to the community members. They're not at arm's length. They're really bringing you in. The other thing that they're amazing at is connecting that ecosystem. And I think more people could learn from them and what they're doing. I think part of the reason so many Web2 brands mm -hmm have embraced them. And it's not just Nike, but it's Disney and Reddit. I mean, all the big brands that are really successful here is because they are a connector. They connect community members together, which makes the community stronger, right? So, you know, one, once I saw this diagram about how you can build a community, you can have like a person at the center of it and then have everybody kind of circling, you know, orbiting the leader. Or you can have many people and connections going all across. And that forms a stronger, tighter form of community. That's what Polygon has done so incredibly well. They not only have a strong leader in Sandeep, but they've also got all these connections going back and forth. So we as Unstoppable Domains are a member of their community. All the time they're introducing us to others who have a, a similar purpose or goal or something that we could both get a win-win scenario out of. And I think that that is very special. And then the last thing I would say is they've recognized that forming a community around your identity is crucial. So again, you know, Truth in Advertising, I work for Unstoppable. They've done a dot polygon and that has really helped form an even tighter community and enabling them to create sub-communities so, you know, I think this is really important, right? I don't think it's just a singular community anymore, but they've created sub-communities. Like a sub-community could be gaming or DeFi. They've created sub-communities around regions, right? I'm in India, I'm in New York, I'm in Singapore. So they've really done a nice job of creating these sub-communities, which even further interlock people together around things that they're similar in and creating that bond that I think is so strong. So I truly applaud Polygon. I think they are one of the strongest communities. And I think that's why you're seeing such success with them in the marketplace. What I hear you saying is a lot of these companies that are developing projects on Polygon, they're kind of bringing them together so they can share insights and knowledge like unstoppable domains when you, you know, first get uh, your 
domains, you know, I'm pretty sure they're on Polygon in the beginning, right? And then eventually you can, you know, I think they may not even be off chain and then they go on Polygon. I don't remember exactly. But, you know, the question I've got is how are they facilitating the communities? Is this through some tech stack that we haven't already mentioned? I'm just curious, like how they actually do that. They leverage a lot of the communities today through Telegram. You know, now that they've got digital identity through Unstoppable, we've announced a new messaging engagement platform so that they can message these sub communities much more effectively. If you've tried to use many of the tools out there today in the Web3 world, they're very difficult. You can do a singular community, but if you want to do sub communities within a community, they're very difficult. It's very complicated really hard, really easy. People just don't have the time. And so enabling that communication by a sub-community is really critical. Very cool. Okay. We talked about co-creation. We talked about loyalty slash rewards. We talked about community. We've got another one that we want to bless you that we want to talk about. So the fourth one, talk to us about the fourth part of the process that we need to consider here. Yeah. I think the last part about creating an immersive community is around scarcity as well. So, you know, looking at and figuring out how you use what you're doing to produce an output that enables you to get business results very quickly. I got I got an example that I want to use here with Lowe's that I think is a great example of this and uh, how they're also experimenting in the space to make something immersive, but at the same time have a powerful impact on business as well. So before you go into sharing that example. I would love to unpack what you mean by scarcity, just because for marketing community, scarcity, they think of sale ending soon, or they think of a deadline or a countdown timer or limited quantity on hand. But from a Web3 perspective, there's hypothetically unlimited scarcity, right? So what does scarcity mean in your mind before we give the example? So if you think about scarcity overall, and you think about how you're going to use and leverage it. Of course, you could use scarcity as, you know, you've got a limited quantity. But the other piece of it is, do you have a demand for a good and that that demand for that good or that service is greater than the availability of that good or service as well? And how can you use and leverage that in a way that enables customers to want to engage with you more. So you're solving a problem or you've got hashtag tech for good, something that really has that basic element of creating something that no one else has in the marketplace, but doing it in a way I think that uh, emphasizes the, the, the goodness that exists as well. And we see we see many examples of this, especially in a world like you know, NFTs in reality, you could create as many as you wanted forever. But how do you use that as hashtag tech for good, for example? Yeah. And I think in Web3, the beauty of scarcity, especially when we think of NFTs is traits. For example, you have, let's say you have a collection of 10,000 NFTs and let's say there's only a couple of them that are one of ones, right? Well, there's scarcity within scarcity. There's only 10,000. There's maybe only 10 of them that are one of one. Also, I've seen NFT projects where there's unlimited supply, but there's a limited amount of time where you can mint them, right? So for example, we've seen this with like a lot of these open editions with artists, right? Well, where they'll have, it's only going to be like three minutes that it's open for or 24 hours that's going to open. And that's a natural scarcity because you can't get it after that period of time. So 
that's what I love about the world of Web3 is there's such fascinating amounts of scarcity that can be built into it. I would love to hear the example that you were going to share. I think you said it was Lowe's, right? Was that what you're going to share? Yeah, yeah. I'll actually, I'm actually going to use two and I know we're going to run out of time. So I'll, I'll, I'll go really quickly. But one of the new announcements we just made this week that you and I had chatted about, would it be ready or would it not, is scarcity in, in the use or utility. So I thought this was interesting with MetaRides. So MetaRides has created a set of car NFTs and cars are, are really, you know, I think they're the number two sought after element in all of Web3 in terms of do you relate to it? How do you, you know, how do you value it? Cars are very high up there, probably because there are a lot of guys, I guess, in the space right now. Probably, yes. Probably. But what they have done is they've created these car NFTs. They have a limited number of them. And unless you get the car NFT, it's not that you wouldn't have the car, but we're going to do races with the cars. So not only are you not going to have a car or picture or that element to get you into a community, but there's going to be racing that's involved in that as well. And so you have to have the car to be in the first rounds of the race. You have to buy a car by a certain time. And then you're able to use that. It's an NFT to race and, you know, time your laps and, uh, you know, then score against, you know, hey, Michael, I, I scored 1.31 seconds. What did you score? So it gives you that extra utility. I really believe the scarcity in utility is going to be what wins. Not necessarily, you know, just a picture, for example, or just something of value. I think the value is going to come from the utility of what you purchase or what you have on chain. Um, the other example I love is I like Lowe's too. And why I like the Lowe's example is they're actually using this as tech for good and scarcity in a little bit different way. So one of the problems that retailers have is theft. And it's not just theft, it's organized crime theft, which is on the rise. In fact, one of the articles I read said that $700,000 for every billion sold, that's a lot of money to me, is taken away because of crime or threat. Not just an individual person going in and stealing something, but organized crime. And so what they've done is they've created a set of NFTs that serve as a digital twin for their power tools. And there's only so many of them because there's only so many power tools. So there's scarcity there. And they're using that to track who buys the digital, who buys the tool. So every power tool has a digital twin, which is an NFT. And this could completely revolutionize the way that retailers are dealing with theft, which is, I don't know if you knew this, but it's on the rise. And I think it's such a unique way to create an immersive experience for the user. They have an NFT that matches their power tool at the same time, solves this amazing business problem as well. So I love both of those examples. One's kind of more of a fun one. One is like solving a real world business problem that has immediate cost savings for a company. Can you imagine, is the scenario like, hey, to activate your power tool, you've got to scan this QR code and claim the NFT. And if somebody else has it, you can't use it. You got it. And if it was stolen, they know the batch that was stolen so they can make it so that you can't claim the NFT. Is that kind of where we're going with this? That's right. And they're experimenting with what right now. I haven't seen the results that they've had right away. But in one of the articles I read, you know, they were, they said that this, you know, again, could revolutionize the way retailers do it. So then almost what you have, Michael, think about this. You know, today we have NFT marketplaces, right? We have, you know, Super Rare, we have Rarible, we have Magic Eden, we have OpenSea. 
Imagine now you've got a marketplace of power tools from Lowe's. You've got a marketplace of clothing from, you know, I don't know what store it is, but you know, now you could have marketplaces of purchased goods, which is fascinating to me, like completely disruptive. That is really, really cool. I can totally see this also being used in luxury goods, for example, to authenticate the reliability of it if you are going to sell it to someone else, right? Which I think would be really, really valuable. Like if you're a retailer, imagine you're selling uh, Louis Vuitton, whatever, right? You could, could scan a code and confirm that that retailer, according to the code, is the licensee that's uh, allowed to resell that product in order to be able to confirm it's legit and not counterfeit, right? I mean, these are the kind of things where I, I see us going, right? You got it. And in fact, another, and you know, another company, I can't say what the company is yet, but it's a startup. And the other thing they're working on with luxury goods. So if you think about luxury goods, there are whole marketplaces of reselling that luxury good. So if I'm a, let's say I have a Hermes uh, outfit or Burberry and I buy something for my child, this is the use case. I buy something for my child. The child's going to grow out of it very quickly but I wanna resell that so I can buy more Burberry for my child as they get older. So now I have an NFT with that and maybe the, the smart contract in that says that Burberry would actually get a percentage when you resell it. So think about that for a revenue stream for a retailer. So now I sell, let's say I sell a onesie, which is for a baby. I sell that and it's got Burberry stripes on it. When my baby outgrows it, I sell it to someone else. Now Burberry not only gets money off the first sale, but off the second sale. And I, as the consumer, get verification that it's really a Burberry. It's not a fake. So there's like that win-win scenario as well that's going on there. I think that's fascinating. And I, I love all these startups that are coming because they're, they're really, you know, real world scenarios that people are trying to solve problems with. And because Web3 is the better technology, not just to use Web3 for Web3, but because it's the better technology for that case or that use study, it wins in the executions phase of the deployment. Sandy Carter, author of the new book, The Tiger and the Rabbit, A Business Fable, Harnessing the Power of the Metaverse, Web3, and AI for Business Success. Thank you for coming on today's show. I'm assuming they can find the book anywhere books are sold. And if you want them to connect with you, do you have a preferred social platform or a website you want to send them to? Yeah. So my two, if you're if you're into Web3, obviously Twitter is the place to go. And I'm Sandy underscore Carter. If you're Web2, you probably want LinkedIn. So I am just Sandy Carter on LinkedIn as well. But you can also find me Telegram, Discord, Signal, you name it. I am there as well. Thank you so much for having me on the show too. As usual, you are a great interviewer, Michael. You have a special superpower in the space. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you, Sandy, for coming on today. If you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W79. And if you're new to the show, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast apps. So you don't miss any of our future episodes. And would you let your friends know about this show if you enjoy the show? At Stelzner on Instagram, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter, and at web 3 examiner on Warpcast. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner.
The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.